as I began to put my arms around people from, uh, you know, Congo and people from Syria and people from, um, you know, uh, Morocco, I, I began to realize that, that more and more that we're made of the same stuff, right? I mean, there's, there's really not a lot of difference in the, the core of who we are. And so for me, the awareness piece and what I, what I hope to be able to communicate with people, even people that I've talked with since who have had similar experience with me, is realizing that we have to move from sort of grouping people to actually uh, having individual relationships. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What gaps exist between resettled refugees and their communities? How might we go about bridging them? How can this simple act of spending time with one another in a common place help break down barriers? Why is it so important to move toward an asset-based approach with newcomers and what they bring to our communities? In this episode, we are joined by Kitty Murray and Walt Anderson, who talk with us about how their nonprofit Refuge Coffee is empowering refugees to use their many gifts to help create refuge in Clarkston, Georgia town that has been called the most diverse square mile in the United States. They hope to see Clarkston emerge as a destination, a richly textured village where people who live in greater Atlanta and beyond come to experience a dining, entertainment, and shopping experience created by a robust collaboration between immigrant and American business owners. By pursuing their goal to provide employment and job training opportunities to resettled refugees, creating a unique and welcoming gathering place in Clarkston, and telling a more beautiful refugee story to Atlanta, Refuge Coffee is on a mission to bridge the opportunity gap, the hospitality gap, and the awareness gap. We discuss all that and more in our conversation with Kitty and Walt. Let's get started. Hello, Kitty and Walt. Welcome to Highest Aspirations. Hey, Steve. Thanks. We're honored to be here. Yes, thanks so much for having us. Absolutely my pleasure. We've been uh, we've been going back and forth for quite a while, and I'm excited to finally to finally have the conversation about what you're doing um, uh, at Refuge Coffee in in Clarkston, so let's let's dive in. I I found out about Refuge Coffee and the town of Clarkston, which has been called America's most diverse square mile, uh, by reading an article in the '74 written by Connor Williams, and I'll plug him just because he's a phenomenal writer. So if you see any of his stuff, you should definitely read it. And from why, what I understand from reading the article and the research I've done, um, it's a really unique place, Clarkston. So, Kitty, what what makes it unique for you? Oh, wow. Well, the answer to that is is mostly personal for me because my husband and I live here, and it's just a mile and a half, square mile and a half. So it's small but densely populated, and it is like living uh, at the intersection of the whole world in some ways. There. Um, our population is about 65% foreign born. And of those many, I would 
say the majority are resettled refugees or immigrants who came, you know, from tough places and were resettled here. So it's a, um, in my mind, it's a community of a lot of heroes who've lived through a lot. And it's not, people always ask me, you know, well, where are they from? And I typically say, well, look around the world and see where the hard things are happening and where people are having to flee. And that's where the people in Clarkston are from. So it's a mix of um, almost every continent. And, um, and again, it's small. And we're in the south. It's in Atlanta, but just right outside of our perimeter. So it um, has an urban and not so urban feel. It's just really unique. Uh, it's a friendly place. Um, even when there are language barriers, people are just friendly. So, um, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Amazing. Thanks for that. Walt, did you have anything to add into the uniqueness of Clarkston? Yeah, I would just say, agree, obviously, with everything Kitty said. It's, it's a place where, just like yesterday, I'm sitting there meeting with, with somebody, and uh, Mama Amina, who is uh, from Somalia, comes up and interrupts the conversation to give me a big kiss on the cheek. And um, it's one of those places that you just don't really bat an eye at that sort of interaction, and you just don't find that in many places anymore. Yeah, that's great. That, that image brings a smile to my face for sure, and I'm sure many others. So Kitty, you, um, you, you come to Clarkston with your, with your husband and you started um, Refuge Coffee. Why, why start it there and, and, and why coffee? <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't have many typical answers for that, but it, it's kind of a multi-layered one. When we moved to Clarkston, we, we were intentional, but in a really kind of loose way. So we just wanted to live here we both had day jobs we knew the makeup of the community that was part of the draw for us um, but you quickly get invested here and as I got to know our neighbors there are two things I noticed that kind of bothered me and one was that um, well I'm gonna say this backwards this didn't bother me I we just fell in love with the community and our neighbors um, Walt mentioned Amina Amina is the first refugee we met our first week here and she's supreme networker and I tend to be too. So we just met people and I kept thinking, um, why don't my friends who don't live in Clarkston know the people who live in Clarkston? Why isn't there more interaction? Why don't, this is like a jewel in our city and nobody knows it's here. Nobody knows the history of it. And, and that was true, especially six years ago when we moved here. And so I just wanted to introduce people to people. And, um, and then I, my day job was writing, which I did from home. And as most writers, I write a lot in coffee shops. So I kept thinking, I want to, I need, we need a coffee shop here. So the idea that there was this, um, it felt kind of like a hospitality gap. I'd, I'd read somewhere a long time ago, and I wish I could retrieve this to verify it, but that 85% of immigrants to our country have never been inside an American home. And so I knew that I couldn't solve that with our home. <laughs> it's, you know, not big enough, don't have time to do that. But the idea that a coffee shop is like an extension of the American living room, and it's that's what it is in a lot of cultures, just seemed to make sense. 
And then the other thing um, we began to notice as we got to know our refugee neighbors is that um, the jobless rate here is higher than other parts of our city, but it's that doesn't even reflect the full issue because um, refugees often get jobs that are not accessible, they're really far away. And so it's hard to go from this survival state where you're doing a job that is hard, <laughs> but that you don't have time to do anything else because you have to drive an hour and a half to it. And so the idea that we could provide a coffee shop for just for networking all our cultures and also provide some jobs and then not just jobs, but preparedness for better jobs. It all just came together. So, and I, I love to say I'm a, I'm a founder and a founder is the person who finds the smart, passionate people to do something <laughs> because I don't know how to do pretty much any of it, but um, the, the people that, have come on board as this thing has folded are phenomenally gifted. Yeah, that's great. I, I love the, the explanation that you just gave about it. I mean, I think we can all see the coffee shop as kind of being a center of a community, a place where people come and gather um, to, to work or to enjoy them, their time with family and friends. And that, boy, that totally makes sense. I'm not sure that everybody would come up with the idea that you came up with and, and actually have the, the, the drive to do it. So um, don't sell yourself short uh, on, on sort of just being a founder because I think that's uh, that's an important skill. And I think that you've definitely brought the right people together. And one thing that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is the idea of this, um, this hospitality gap. And uh, it's something that I've definitely noticed, like in my own community, I live um, close to Boston, but in Southern New Hampshire and, you know, looking for opportunities to just meet with people from, from, um, you know, different backgrounds, particularly people who are refugees or have been refugees, you know, sometimes it's not easy to do to find those just really informal opportunities. So I want to talk about some of those, um, some of those gaps that you brought up in the article, um, about communities. You talk about the opportunity gap, which I think is something that most people know about. Then you talk about the awareness gap, and then you talk about the hospitality gap and how you're sort of trying to provide solutions for all of those. So I think we know more or less what the opportunity gap is. You just explained the hospitality gap. What do you, what do you look at as the awareness gap? I think I have an idea of what it is, but could you explain that to us? Sure. I'll start and then I'm going to let Walt add to it because I think Walt experienced it. Um, but I think it is really easy to view refugees as, you know, lump them into a them category and um, and then to be afraid of them or to not trust them or to think they're taking something away from us. And my experience day in and day out is that none of that's true. And I guess we could, um, you know, there are people who do a lot of great work around just advocacy and, um, you know, a lot of the, the t these talking points, you know, and I think the way we chose to address that and that it, this isn't our primary mission, but it just, we've seen it happen over and over again is, well, if we can just bring you to a table, you know, and we don't have an agenda for you. We don't have an agenda for, for anyone who comes in the doors at refuge. Right. Um, and if we can just give you a chance to meet each other, 
all of those preconceived ideas that create walls around people will evaporate and it might be slow, but it'll happen. And I'm just a big believer in that. And it, it, it's in some ways it's kind of shallow, you know, can we just have coffee? I mean, that's it, nothing else. And, um, but, but the that, humanity, humanity takes over, right? Generally. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the, the shallow water that you then it's like, Oh, this water feels good. I'm going to dive all the way in. So, and I think Walt can address what that felt like for him. I'm putting you on the spot, Walt. <laughs> Go for it, Walt. Let's hear it. I think for me, you know, I, um, I grew up in, um, in a, in a culture that my experience with people who are refugees, people who are immigrants was largely based on what I uh, was told through the media, what I saw on television. Um, there was not a lot of firsthand uh, awareness of people from different backgrounds. And so for me, when we moved to this area, uh, my, my wife began volunteering, helping out um, over at Refuge. And I, I won't go into the whole story of how that came to be. But that was right around the time, I was, it was during the election season, and it was right around that time that um, there was a lot of discussion about Syrian refugees in particular. And um, of course, the word terrorism was thrown in there quite a bit and a lot of alarmism. Um, and so she would come back, and I, I hadn't been over to Clarkston, but she would come back and say, oh, today I met this new uh, gentleman that's a, a refugee from Syria. And I, with my limited uh, experience, my first thought was, is that safe? You know, like, is it, is it safe for my wife and my daughters to be going over there and meeting with those people, right? I mean, that's the, that's the verbiage that we use, right? And so um, I said, well, I'd like for you to take me over there. And to be honest with you, it was much more of a sort of protective husband, father sure. kind of attitude than really mm -hmm. being open to experience things. And so I went over there and super long story short, um, I just really realized that I, I had not humanized people from different backgrounds in, in a way that was really healthy or productive. And as I began to put my arms around people from, uh, you know, Congo and people from Syria and people from, um, you know, uh, Morocco, I, I began to realize that, that more and more that we're made of the same stuff, right? I mean, there's, there's really not a lot of difference in the, the core of who we are. And so for me, the awareness piece and what I, what I hope to be able to communicate with people, even people that I've talked with since who have had similar experience with me, is realizing that we have to move from sort of grouping people to actually uh, having individual relationships. And, sure. and when we do that, um, we sort of, I always, always like to call it kind of putting skin on an issue. Um, you know, you actually put humanity around it. And it, it's, uh, Brene Brown has the quote in her book, um, Braving the Wilderness, that it's, it's hard to hate close up, so you should move in. And um, and so that's kind of been the the mantra that I've been trying to adopt. I will say my development in this has been uh, is still evolving. And I think that the first like when you really begin to open yourself to these kind of relationships, I think that sort of the the white uh, Southeast American 
perspective when you're like, I'm actually going to open myself to this. The first stage uh, of that is, oh, I need to rescue these people, right? Mm -hmm. I need to, I've got this, I've got this ability to come in and rescue. I think as, as you mature, as, as that, as that uh, develops, you know, and you truly recognize what it is you're doing, you, you really realize that they're actually rescuing you, you know? Um, yeah. and, and so I think that's something that's, that, that's a switch that's kind of flipped for me. Um, that, and I do think I was guilty even early on of like, I need to come help. I need to come contribute. I need to come. And it's really not about that. Uh, it's about uh, being a friend, but then also um, just these brilliant, amazingly gifted individuals. Uh, I, I think they actually rescue us from a really limited view of the world. Yeah. You know, I, I do. I want to take a couple things out of that, if, if I may, because I think it's really important. One, I give you a lot of credit for having that self-awareness um, and for having that. I was just reading an article earlier today related to education, but it was about having a growth mindset and sort of understanding, you know, when it comes to equity and when it comes to understanding other people, really looking at yourself in the mirror and coming to grips with the way that, that you perceive the world. Uh, and, it, and it seems like you're a great example of when you say I'm still evolving, I'm still learning uh, of what it means to have that, um, that mindset. I think uh, people like you and me, a white male as well, um, can, can, can do a lot to kind of look at ourselves in the mirror and think about what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. So that's number one. Right. Number two, just earlier today, the day that we're recording this podcast with you, I actually recorded another interview with uh, a young man by the name of uh, Abu Bakar from Syria. He's a Syrian refugee living in Canada now. He actually wrote, um, well, his, his teacher wrote a book on his behalf um, when he was still in high school about his experience. And over and over again today, from the other point of view, and you mentioned Syrian refugees, he's one of them. He said, he said to me over and over, and when we'll have it up, people can listen to it soon, that it's about human connections. He mentioned quite a bit. I asked him what was most surprising to him coming to Canada. And he said that people's perception of Syria was all from what they were seeing in the news and what they were seeing in social media. Meanwhile, in his book, he constantly talks about how his friends in Syria were playing video games, playing soccer, messing around with one another, just like we do here or in Canada, right? Uh, but we lose that human touch when we just see things through the media. And he has said by meeting people and by telling his story and by having conversations, you know, that's how we make these big changes. I think the humanity of the whole thing uh, is so important. So thank you for indulging me. This interview is about you all, but I, there's a, such a strong connection um, that, I, that I made earlier today with what you're saying now. Yeah. Can't wait to listen to that. Yeah, me too. I think it was a good one. Um, I'm a little biased, but I think it was a good one. <laughs> so Kitty, I want to, I want to come back to you and this, and this is, this has um, something to do with what Walt was just, was just talking about. One quote from, from, uh, from Connor Williams article in the 74 that I really loved. Um, and and I'll, I will post that article in our, in our show notes so people can see it was, you said, don't ever see them, them as being the refugees that you're working with. Don't ever see them as people with needs see them as people that are assets. I mean, I would go so far as to say that you don't need any, you don't need to do anything for them. Just figure out ways to do things with them. I thought that was beautiful. And, and we talk a lot about asset-based instructional strategies in schools when we're thinking about education. But I'm curious about how this approach applies in your work and how you're kind of working with these uh, amazing people on a day-to-day -day basis. That's awesome. I 
Yeah, I'll answer that. And then it, it seeps into our, of course, into our job training program, which Walt runs, but and which we'll definitely get into. Yeah, I would say the first year, especially, but even now, um, you know, we kind of have these rubrics that we use when we make decisions. And it's the most important thing for us is to know who we are, you know? And so when we started, I remember, I think we had an identity crisis a day, you know, because we were like, well, we're not sure. a, we're not an aid agency. We're not a resettlement agency. We're not, not this. We're not that. What are we, you know? And this idea of doing life with our refugee neighbors became really clear after a while. So an example, um, we do a lot of events at our shop and, um, you know, we use the, we have catering trucks. So we go all over the city, which gives us a great way for our trainees to interact with all kinds of people in all kinds of settings. But in Clarkston, you know, the shop is right there. And so we put on these events and um, just to, and our whole idea is mainly it's to benefit the community. And then eventually we're like, Oh, but we need to raise money because we're a nonprofit. So we do a little of that, but we do this event, we call it shop refuge and we sell clothing for $2 per item. And we found out from other people, well, we've been giving away clothes in the apartments and nobody shows up. And at these, we, we have made as much as $6,000 in a day at these events, wow. just selling that's 3000 articles of clothing. That's easy math. I can do that. But, <laughs> but I, I remember the first or second time we did and it. Someone called me and said, well, I'm going to donate some clothes and I'm going to come and volunteer, but I'm not shopping because that's for the refugees. And this thing rose up in me and I was like, that, isn't the way we're going to do this. And, and I probably scared her because I was like, no, you know, and I said, we, we are doing this together. And, and this idea of scarcity is so awful. <laughs> and so it to, to be able to say to her, you know what, we're going to work extra hard. So there will be enough for whoever comes and everybody's going to shop. You're going to shop. I'm going to shop. We're going to look at stuff together we're going to do this as a community and it isn't something we're going to stand back and mm -hmm. do for refugees. And so we started, that kind of gave us the language like, Oh, wait a minute, everything we do, it needs to be with the community, not for it. And obviously there are some things that we do for people that they don't know how to do, you know, legal aid or, I mean, we don't do that, but others do that. Or, sure. you know, the whole resettlement process is a lot of, for dynamic, mm -hmm. but the quicker we can move into a with mentality, the quicker this human connection can happen. And so I, you know, that example was really telling to me. Um, and that's just one example, but I think we, we sort of realized, Oh, we hit on something. This is a huge value of ours, the with rather than for, and as much as we can, let's make sure we're operating like that. And, you know, it seems so simple. Like, it's just like listening to you, listening to Abubakar earlier today, it just all seems so simple that we do things with one another and that everyone has something to offer. But something about human nature, or I don't know what it is, I'm, I'm no psychologist, but something about us wants to kind of swoop in and, and, and save, like you were saying, Walt. And it's just, it's really hard to shift that. I mean, Walt, you were talking about that evolution, like that it just takes to kind of be... Um, 
human around people that we envision as first either with, with some, some level of fear and then second, a, a more positive reaction, which is one of, I need, I need to help you. Like, I'm not afraid of you anymore, so now I need to help you. But to get to that level that you're talking about now, Kitty, it just seems like more work than, 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 you, than one would think. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it does. And it, and it does, I think what it requires, it's not a complex, thorny problem, you know, but what it, because it is very simple, um, but simplifying complex things is, requires vigilance, right? So like, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another example, but I think what it requires is slowing down the swoop in and save process. You know, like er, that's the thing that I've thought about a lot lately that privilege gives us the right to do things quickly. And if we can slow down our processes and think about them just a little bit more then we'll hit on this stuff, you know? And so, cause swooping in and just saying here, let me do that. I mean, I raised my husband and I raised four children and I, I can tell you it was a lot easier for me to clean their rooms, you know, than for them to do it. I'm raising four now and that is certainly a battle. Yeah, I hear yeah, you. And it's a, and they are children and even children have lessening degrees of accountability to you. Right. But once they're adults, our adult children, I've not ever checked to see if they've paid their electric bills. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't dare you know, because they are independent, uh, dependable human beings. And so I think when we treat people like children or less than equals, that's one of the ways it really does show up. And I, and I did it all wrong. I just, just, and I still sometimes, Walt knows, sometimes we still really get it wrong. But I, when we first moved here, our friend Amina introduced me to people and I, I did it. It was, I was the quintessential savior and it was, and I knew better. Like I'd read things and I knew better, but I think the shock and awe of a family struggling in their first three months here just kind of did me in and I would get on Facebook and I ended up with, you know, basically a garage full of stuff that I would dump on families. And then what it did was create dysfunctional relationships that I later had to repair. So. I mean, I understand the earth. Yeah, it's uh, and I give you, like I said to Walt earlier, I give you sort of credit for for recognizing that, and I think that's an important thing um, for us to discuss. Let's let's shift gears a little bit, Walt. I want to come back to you because um, you know, the, think about the what the mission is of of Refugee Coffee. Um, I'm going to read it. Refugee Coffee relentlessly pursues our goal to provide employment and job training opportunities to resettled refugees to create a unique welcoming gathering place in Clarkston and to tell a more beautiful refugee story to Atlanta. And one of the components there, uh, Walt, I think you can probably speak to best, and that's the job training piece. So love to hear more about that training program specifically the way you all have structured it around the four central themes that you uh, have outlined as dreams, goals, story, and opportunity. So how did that start and, and where do you see it going? Sure. So we, and I, I would, I would love to just respectfully correct the, the name. It's, it's refuge coffee. Oh, I, I knew I was going to do that. I knew it. Everybody the, does, Steve. You're not. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. It's probably our branding. 
I have no, it's not your branding. I have a note on my on my sheet right here. So thank you for the correction. I put go on. So please, please take that with all due respect, of course. Um, so uh, yeah, so our, our training program is is another one of those things that's always evolving, right, Katie? I mean, it's one, it's it's always kind of got a new horizon. But I think um, what one thing that I'll I'll tag on to what we were just talking about, and also just it'll flow right into job training. I think that one thing I'm learning in my experience with, uh, with this idea of the with me principle is a little different than kitties just because I don't live in the community. Um, I live in a, in just one County over. And so I don't have the same, um, I don't, I don't have quite the same connection with the entire community that Kitty would have because she lives in the community. Um, but I would say that for me, I, I feel like I'm, um, able to be a coach. And I, I think that there's uh, maybe maybe some subtle, just some subtle difference between being a savior and a coach. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, I, I'm a huge basketball fan. So forgive me for using a basketball analogy, but um, I'm a huge basketball fan. I, I feel oftentimes like what like good. good. Well, you're, you're right outside of Boston, right? So go go Celtics. But um, so so. For me, um, I feel often like what I do when I spend this this really intentional focused time with our trainees is it's almost as if there are world class athletes outside of a blacktop, um, but the blacktop is locked and, and and the coach is the only one that has the ball, and so um, I get the opportunity to unlock the the gate into the blacktop and toss out the ball and then marvel at these world-class athletes perform. What a great way to put it. And, and then be able to just help them make some little tweaks, you know, that, that might make them a little more effective um, in their performance. And so I think that, that that's kind of where I feel like my role is as, as a coach for them. And the beauty of refuge is they have many coaches. You know, I mean, that, there's, that's the one thing that I think, one of the things that is so valuable about them getting an opportunity with refuge is the networking piece um, that can't be undersold mm-hmm. so, uh, or can't be oversold. So uh, but as far as the training piece goes, I think the first thing that we realized when I began in this role was that uh, a lot of refugees, as they come to a new country, um, they have either not had the opportunity or not been given the permission to dream very broadly with broad strokes about their future. And so I think I felt like I would love to start their journey with us with just doing some dreaming, you know, asking them questions, heart level questions about what they're passionate about, what their burdens are about. We talk in the the context, and we—I think we might have borrowed this from from Plywood, which is another organization that we're very closely connected to. But asking them the question, like, "What problem were you created to solve?" Um, and and just even that opportunity to dream that way um, is—it it almost like it, it just sort of activates this energy and fervor in them um, that's just really exciting to kind of stand by and and witness. Sure. And so the idea is to begin the process of going from just surviving, um, because a lot of times as Americans, we, we talk about, you know, I'm just barely surviving right now. And that's sort of, um, 
you know, that we, we use that as just sort of a figure of speech. But but many of my friends who are refugees, that was a literal life, um, every everyday life for them was just trying to literally stay alive. Absolutely. Um, and so the, to, to help them move from surviving to thriving is kind of where we want to begin the dreaming process. Then the next one uh, is goals. And so we talk about impact areas. So what are the areas of your life, your life that have the most impact? And those are the areas that you're going to have to be successful in if you're going to move towards your dream or your power place. If you're not setting goals in those key areas, you won't be successful in the big, in the things that matter. Mm-hmm. And so just the basic kind of development stuff that we talk about in, in, uh, in a lot of business circles and education circles, smart goals, you know, things that, that we've all heard of, but we go through those, those processes. Then next we talk about story because any opportunity that would come uh, in an interview, in an opportunity to, to get entrance into an educational program, there will be opportunity for them to tell their story. And so we want to give them the tools to be able to do that. And so we talk about them learning their uh, learning to be able to articulate uh, their 30-second story, their, uh, their three-minute story, and their 30-minute story. And so we do some and we talk about their 10 high points and their kind of 10 low points and then drill down into kind of one of the five moments of your life that shaped you the most and caused you to be who you are today and how do you incorporate that into sort of storytelling and being able to tell your story to someone. And then the last piece is opportunity. And that's when we kind of get down to the nitty gritty. We talk about resume building. We talk about uh, interviewing. We do mock interviews and, and practice that and evaluate that. And ultimately the goal is that they would be competitive in the workplace um, and be able to go into step in opportunities. Kind of overarching all of that is, is ESL. And what we're working on now, because you asked about where we're headed, but I think we're, what we're working on now is we're actually going to create a uh, handbook that has this content that we can actually hand over to our trainees when they join us. And um, right now, it's all kind of been living between Google Drive and Dropbox and Evernote. Um, but we're trying to put it all in one place, give them a, a, a physical book that they can work through during their time with us. And then I think the other piece is the ESL, and and that's an area that we are wanting to make more robust by, uh, I had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with ESL mentors, having a monthly ESL element. They they often go to the local college there to take classes, and that's fine, but yep. we, we want to have ESL available at the, at the coffee garage and be able to offer that to our trainees and our vision, our dream is to actually go beyond that and even help ESL, help incorporate ESL into the trainees' homes and their other family members that are, that are here in the States with them. That's amazing. I'm going to unpack a few things because there's a lot that you said there that I think are worth sort of discussing. The first thing that I want to say is that when you went and described what that Dreams, Goal, Story, Opportunity series kind of looks like, the first thing I'm thinking to myself is, wow, that, that, that could be great for anyone. That'd be great for me. Like, no matter who sure, you are, sure. that that's that's a, a great uh, sort of process to walk through, which I think ties um, nicely into the kind of whiff, you know, uh, mentality that you're not doing something that's necessarily tailored specifically in in a positive way for 
you know, people who, um, uh, who, who are refugees, this, this is, this is something that works for everyone. We like to say in educational circles that good instruction for English language learners is good instruction for everyone. So I, th I think that's great. Um, the other piece that, that you mentioned family and bring it into, to, to, to families and the ESL piece, I think is phenomenal as well. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, they're learning a lot of the English that they need through this experience because you learn from context. So if someone's dreams are different than someone else's, yes. the vocabulary and the language skills that they're going to learn might be different from someone else, but, uh, but important for them, um, in, in that context. So we're running out of time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to wrap up. One of the questions that that I like to ask everyone who comes on highest aspirations, no matter what their background is, if there is a book or other resource that has had um, sort of a profound effect on you, either personally or professionally. So Walt, I'm going to put you on the spot first, and then I'll ask Kitty if she has one. And you can, you can mention two, no more than two though, and preferably just one if you have it. Okay. Uh, I would say the two that are fairly recent would be the one I mentioned earlier, um, Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. And the, the whole concept of, uh, for me, I've experienced this a lot, even more so recently, uh, but I, I find that I'm often too liberal for my conservative friends and too conservative for my liberal friends. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I find that uh that that i find myself in that wilderness that she speaks of in that book um whether that be in, in a religious way in politics uh, in the way i view the world and so that book just uh i feel like my soul found found a place of home in that book and in the those words that was a great one these are my two walt <laughs> are, are we with the same two it's okay you, you <laughs> well, i'll tell you what I, no you no, go Why ahead. Don't you take that no, one? You, you I'll just give one. You can have okay, it. Okay. You can have it. Um, but it's uh, barking to the choir, and I'm gonna I'm gonna forget his name. So you're gonna have to help me with the guy's Father name. Gregory Father Gregory Boyle. Boyle. I always want to call Gregory him Doyle Boyle. for some reason. Boyle. Um, Gregory yeah. Boyle. Um, but he uh, he is actually the the founder of Homeboy Industries out in L.A. and they do um, just some incredible stuff, both with rehabilitation and job training all that specifically in the the, uh, the gang communities and the uh, and the, um, the the communities in LA that are at risk and so just listening to kind of his uh, brand of living out his faith uh, was really eye-opening and challenging to me that I think it's just that faith and living that out is a lot more about what you are doing than than always what you are saying. And so that was a really helpful resource to me. So thanks for making me read it. Kitty. You're welcome. <laughs> so, so Kitty, you, you made him read that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, honestly, those would be my top two. And, you know, you know, it's a book that has an impact on you when you're quoting it continually. And when you decide that you should make your whole staff read it. <laughs> um, sure. Everybody read that second one. Um, so two are really have been essential for me. I'm going to hark back to when we first started. Uh, and this is maybe a little odd because it doesn't really have anything to do with job training or language or anything, That's fine. but there's a book. Yeah. There's a book called um, 
Making Ideas Happen by Scott Belsky. And, you know, I, I am really not suited to, I'm a, I'm good at ideas, but I'm not great at making them happen. And like our, our COO said to me Monday after staff meeting, he goes, I love the way you just float an idea out there. And when, and if we all shut it down, you all go, you just kind of go, Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> and I said, well, that's because if we did every idea I came up with, we would all be exhausted. But, um, but it's a good book because it's for creatives um, and, and kind of just, you know, what to do in your life and in your organization if you're a creative, but to actually accomplish things. Um, so that was just a real helpful at the beginning book for me. And then another one, uh, I'm reading Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here. The subtitle is Black Dig Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And, you know, these issues that we um, think about a lot here have have a lot to do with racism and and you know here we are in I, some would say the center of our civil rights movement you know as a country and yet there's still those issues are still present and we're still grappling with them we're still learning to be honest with them we're still trying to figure out how to do diversity really rather than just talk about it all of those things um, and then there's the added nuance of racism as it exists throughout the entire world, but it's still very much based on um, who you were born as, you know, and what color your skin is a lot. And so that book was a really helpful book, book for me. It's, it's kind of hard to read as a white woman, um, but in a good way, a real challenging way. And it, it's, really a lot about uh, inclusive culture. And again, I, I read a thing yesterday while I went to a, a seminar, a founders group, and a woman said, I'm going to butcher this, but if your team doesn't roll their eyes every time you bring up um, mission, vision, and culture, <laughs> then you're not saying it. Then you're not saying it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one. I know. Yeah. I felt very vindicated by that, but you're not vindicated, but, um, whatever. But yeah. So I think I, I have to think about this a lot. Otherwise I act on my first instincts and they're not always the greatest. So the more I think about what are the repercussions or the implications, like we're not doing anything political, but everything we do can be easily politicized mm -hmm. and it has political implications. We've chosen not to be faith-based, but I'm a faith-based human being. And so that comes into play. And then we are in a community of many faith, different faith-based people. And so what does that look like? And we say that we're agendaless, but what does that really mean? You know, how does that, how do we open our doors to everybody? Um, and yet still, you know, be kind and all of that. So anyway, that book is a good, challenging book to read. Um, I'm still here. So, well, that's great. You've given us, uh, I think, five, four or five books, which is <laughs> which is great. Selfishly, for me, one of the reasons why I ask the questions is to uh, to expand my own library. But I do think that um, listeners get uh, get a good perspective of different books to read. And very often, their books, and this is wonderful, but very often their books about Yale education. Uh, immigration stories of refugees when those are all wonderful stories but um and books but you've you've added i think uh some some good ones to the uh to the library here 
So last question for y'all. Um, I, I want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to tell people um, where they can find out or how they can find out more about refuge, not refugee, but refuge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's easy. We're, it's our website. There are two ways to get to it. Refuge.coffee. That's the easiest or refuge coffee co co.com. And then on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we're Refuge Coffee Co. And those are probably the best places, and you can get to us personally through those. And, um, yeah, that's a good starting place. Perfect. Well, Walt Kitty, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'm, uh, I love what you're doing. I hope to someday actually visit um, uh, the, the, the shop when I'm down in the Atlanta area. I don't know when that will be, but when I am, I will let you know. And I will visit and I would encourage, um, not having been there, but having spoken with you and knowing what I know, I would encourage anybody uh, in the area to visit. So thank you so much for your time. Um, keep up the good work and I look forward to, uh, to finding out what you do next. Well, thank you. Thank you. These are great questions. It's been really a treat to talk to you. Enjoy the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.